As we uh, transition into the message today, I want to take a moment. We are back in our study on Hebrews. And before we dive into today's message, I do want to lay again the context of where we're finding our place. For the past several weeks, we've been going through this book, and the main theme of it is demonstrating the superiority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, helping us to see that he is the best of the best. And the reason for this is, back when this book was written, Jesus had come, he had lived, he had died, he had risen from the grave, he had demonstrated his triumph over sin and the ability for us to be saved by grace through faith. Christ had also demonstrated that he was indeed God in the flesh. So, from that, we know that Jesus was among his people, demonstrating the power of the resurrection, but then after a period, he had said, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. He ascends into heaven, and we see in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit that has eternally existed now comes and begins to indwell the body of believers, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to aid them in their walk with him. Now, think through this, because everybody has seen this, and they've heard Jesus say, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I will be coming back. I'm coming back for you. So mentally, in their brains, they're thinking, okay, this is great. It might be a week. It might be a month. It might be a year. It might be a decade. But the issue is, as time goes on, Christ is in heaven. The followers of Jesus are now being persecuted for their faith. Because they believe in Christ, they are now experiencing hardship and difficulty Simultaneously, and this is so important to remember and recognize, the temple where the worship had been existing for a long period of time was still functioning. Things from the Old Testament were still going on. Now, what we know about this and what we're going to see in a minute is Jesus comes and when he dies on the cross, we read in the scriptures that as he essentially says, it is finished and he gives up his spirit, a great earthquake comes, the temple is shaken, and the veil that separates the Holy of Holies is torn. Obviously demonstrating, as we see, that indeed Christ is God in the flesh. But you have to think about mentally where these individuals were, and I want to place us, essentially, in somewhat similar. These people are following Jesus, they are being persecuted for their faith, they're looking over and they're saying, you know, all of this happened, but things over here are still going on. Things are still happening. Why, if I'm following Jesus, okay, and I'm going to put this in quotes, should I continue with this because it's hard? And many individuals were starting to say, I want to go back to the way that it was. I want to go back to the Old Testament system. And the whole book is written where the author is saying, let me demonstrate to you systematically why Jesus is superior to all of the Old Testament covenantal system. To the law. And so through the chapters, essentially, the author says he's better than the prophets, he's better than the priests, he's better than Moses, he's better than the law, and how all of that comes together. Why? 
because we've learned that over time, individuals who were atoning for, quote unquote, our sins, were unable to do so. They could cleanse us, as we've read, on the outside. But on the inside, we were still unclean. Our sins were still not forgiven. And so year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the priests would go in, they would do their thing, they would do all of the ceremony that they needed to do according to the law, but the bottom line was this. Their sins were still not forgiven. And so the point that the author makes is Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, and he rises from the grave, and that when we place our faith and trust in him, our sins are forgiven, they're forgotten, and we are his. It's essentially a one and done. And so the author is saying, why would you ever want to go back to an Old Testament system that was incomplete and unable to forgive you of your sins when you have our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and can have forgiveness of sins through grace, mercy, and the blessing of our Savior? We go through all of that, and then the author begins to turn and he says, now that I've established this, now that you understand truly how superior Jesus is, I want to begin to instruct you in how to move forward, but also how not to move forward in your daily living. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're in the latter part of chapter 12, and there is a lot in here where the author is writing about encouragement, but also warning to the followers of Christ. And so the thing that I want to start off with is a simple question. How many of you want to go to heaven? Okay, I see a lot of hands raised. How many of you are willing to follow Christ in order to do so? And the reason that I bring that up is this. I hear a lot of people that want to go to heaven. But I don't see a lot of people who are willing to truly follow Christ and his commands in order to move forward to the blessing. Now before I start, please hear me on this. I am not saying that we need works-based salvation. That is not what I'm indicating here at all. But in a moment, what we're going to read is we're going to read a story about Esau. And what it's going to tell us is simply this that we all can want the blessing, okay? We can all want to go to heaven, but if we're not willing to follow our Savior and be obedient to Him as Lord, it is a great indicator that we are very much like Esau. And what we're going to see in a moment is Esau will seek the blessing with tears. He will cry and he will say, oh my gosh, I want the blessing. I want the blessing. I want the blessing. And he will not receive it. Why? Because he was not willing to follow the responsibility that he had, be given, had been given and to repent and to move forward with his God. What we're going to discover in a minute is this idea of, I want to get out of hell, but I don't want to follow you, Jesus, as Lord. And friends, what I want to tell you today is this. I lovingly ask you to examine your hearts, to examine your walk with Christ, and to say, are you just, quote unquote, following Jesus, hoping to get out of hell, but not willing to make him Lord of your life? That's what we're talking about today. So the question that we're asking is this, can I have the blessing of God without responsibility? 
the reward of heaven without the relationship with Christ, the riches of the kingdom without genuine repentance. And friends, again, please hear me. This message is not saying that you must work for your salvation. But what it is saying is, is you must check your heart. Have you made Christ Lord of your life? Or are you just hoping to get into the gates but not truly follow Jesus as our Savior? Let's take a moment. We're going to look. We've got a lot of things in here. You guys are probably looking at your sermon notes thinking that we're going to get out of here next Tuesday. I'm going to do my best. Okay? We're in chapter 12. We're starting off in verse 14. And if you have your Bibles with you, you'll notice it starts off essentially with this kind of overarching uh, marker. And it says a warning against refusing God. The writer says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights to the oldest, or, or sorry, as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could, uh, could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can uh, be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come uh, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that none of you refuses him who speaks. If they did not escape, then they refused him who warned them on earth. How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaking, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, what the author is doing is he is giving a warning once again to those who are on the fringe, to those who are sitting in the seats, to those who are essentially saying that they're part of the community but their heart has nothing to do with God. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I ask you truly to examine your heart for him. Are you wanting the blessing? Are you wanting to go to heaven, but you're not willing to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? 
And one of the things that we must examine is this. Too often in the world today do we make salvation too simple. Friends, yes, we are saved by grace through faith. I'm not changing that message. That would be heretical. But what I will ask you this, and I've said it before, when someone comes to me and says, how do I know that I'm saved? My first question to them isn't, have you prayed the prayer? It's what's the evidence of God and the fruit of the change in your life because you've made him as Lord? That is how we know that we are saved. That is the indicator that truly we are following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, God is mighty to save. God does save when we profess in him. But what I'm going to tell you is this. Far too often, people want to go to heaven, but they're not willing to make Christ Lord of their life. And so let's take a moment. Let's dive through this passage and take a look at what the author is encouraging. The first thing that I want you to see is in verse 14a. And that is this. That even under pressure, persecution, or prejudice, we are to strive for peace with all people. How many of you feel like we are under persecution right now? To a degree. But we haven't seen anything yet. And one of the things that I want to encourage you in is simply this. Our call as followers of Jesus Christ are to be conduits of peace and the blessing of God. Now, I'm not saying that we are to essentially roll over when we are uh, done injustices. But friends, what are we doing to be the conduit of peace in the world? What are we doing to demonstrate the peace of Christ in the world? Far too often do I see followers of Jesus combating other people in a non-peace-like way. And friends, what I'm going to tell you is this. When you're combating someone in a non-peace-like way, you've already lost them. They're not going to listen. We don't argue people to Jesus. We let God be the one who works in our heart through our example of following him. The author says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Now, interestingly enough, it then continues on and it says, and to be holy. What does that mean? It means to be separate from the world. It means to be different from the world. It means to be set apart from the world. One of the things that I think is so important is this, that if we're following Christ and there's not a difference within us, if there's not a change of heart, if there's not a trajectory that is more for the kingdom and not for the world, we should go back and examine have we truly made Christ Lord of our life? We don't all have to be pastors. We don't all have to go into vocational ministry. But what I want to ask you is simply this. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you're no different today than you were six months ago, a year ago, ten years ago, or whatever it was that you essentially said, I want Jesus, but I don't want him as Lord. We need to examine our heart and our life before him. Here's the thing. Notice this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Friends, what this is, is it's essentially speaking to the individual who's the hypocrite. It's to the individual who says, I followed Jesus, 
but I don't truly make him my Lord. Friends, people see that. They see individuals who essentially go to church, but they're not following Christ. They see individuals who come forward and place judgment on others, but they're not following Jesus. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that we all have to be perfect. When it talks about holiness, it's not saying that we all must be sinlessly perfect. But I do want to ask you this question. Are you separating yourself to Christ and allowing him to change your heart and your life so your trajectory is toward his kingdom and not to your own? Because far too many people want the blessing of heaven, but do not want the responsibility and the requirement of following Jesus. The first thing that I want you to see about pursuing peace with all people is this. We must remember that while we are all encouraged to pursue peace with all people, we are not called to waver from the truth of the gospel or abandon Christ. It doesn't mean that we change the word. It doesn't mean that we change who Jesus is in order to establish peace. The truth is the truth. But what are we doing to be a conduit of that peace? The next thing that I want to show you in verse 14b is this. We've read that we are also to strive for holiness from which people will see the Lord. I want to ask you a very loving but very hard question. Examine your heart right now. Examine your life right now. Examine the last week of your life. Examine the last month of your life. Examine the last year of your life. And lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Would people see Christ in you by how you are living? Or would people see that someone who professes Jesus goes to church on Sunday, but I don't see any difference in them on how they live. They're a saint on Sunday and they're a sinner. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, we're all sinners saved by grace, but the point of this is, do we want to look good? Do we want the blessing, but we're not willing to make Christ Lord of our life? The writer says, essentially, live in peace with all men and to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What I'm driving toward is simply this statement. Friends, there must be a marked difference between followers of Christ and followers of the world. When followers of Christ can blend too easily with followers of the world, something is terribly wrong. There must be a marked difference in us. People must see Christ in us. That is how people see who Christ is. Let me put it another way. Lovingly, I'm going to tell you, we can praise God all we want here in church today. And that's not a bad thing. But what I want to tell you is this. Are you praising God as much today as you will tomorrow? Are you professing Christ? Are you an example of Christ to the people who are around you? 
are they looking and saying there is someone, there's something different about that person than what I see in the world? Or are you blending in, trying to kind of just fit in with the world? The author then continues on, and he says this. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Interestingly enough, what I want to tell you is this, okay? When we do not strive for peace and holiness, we are in danger of failing to obtain the grace of God. And let me explain this for a minute. If we are not asking God to be Lord of our life, if he is not essentially over us, if what we've done is we've said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus because I want him to make my life better. I want to follow Jesus because I want him to change my marriage. I want to follow Jesus because I want him to give me a better job. I want to follow Jesus because I want to make more money. I want to follow Jesus because I want to grow in my position in my company. All of those things are a wrong reason to follow Christ. And what happens is when individuals come forward and they choose to follow Jesus because they want something from him and God's will doesn't give it to them what do we see you're not God you don't love me you must not be real I wanted this and you you chose not to give it to me and so friends what I'm telling you is this we follow Christ not because of what he can give us we follow Christ because of what we've been given And that is eternal life through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of which we cannot obtain ourselves. And when we understand our utter desperation and need for a Savior, and when we recognize, as the author has laid out, that Christ is the only one who can save us wholly and completely and grant us eternal life, our hearts are transformed And the things that we desire, if they come or if they go, it does not matter because Jesus Christ is Lord. The grace of God, the grace of God is this. We are destined to be set apart from God and that destiny is what we call hell a lake of never-ending fire. There are no means in and of ourselves to get ourselves out of that lake. We can try, we can do, we can be, we can act, we can pay, we can do whatever, and the bottom line is we cannot save ourselves. But the good news, the gospel is this. We have a Savior who is Christ, who has died on our behalf. And when we reach out to him and say, Lord, I need you in my life. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved by your grace. What does God do? He says, come to me, my son, my daughter, you are mine. Grace, unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't educate ourselves to it. That is what grace is. When we think 
hey, I'm coming to Jesus because I want him to make something better, maybe he will. And if he does, praise God for it. But if he does not, it does not mean that he is not God, he is not Lord, and he is not in control of all things. Interestingly enough, the author continues on and it says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God, right? And then watch this. He says, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What is the bitterness referring to? The bitterness is actually referring to the backwriting of what the author has already established. And that is, Christ is superior to all things. He is Lord, and you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. When people become bitter, it is, I wanted to follow Christ because I thought he was going to do X for me, and he hasn't done it yet. I thought he was going to change my marriage. I thought he was going to give me more money. I thought he was going to give me a better job. I thought he was going to do this for me. I thought I was going to get that uh, from him. And he hasn't done it, so I'm bitter. Because that's what I think God should do. So friends, what I'm going to tell you is if we miss the grace of God, if we miss the fact that we are saved by grace through faith in Him, and there are no means we can get to God on our own, we begin to embody a root of bitterness. And friends, what I'm doing here, if you're missing it, is is I'm completely attacking the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, and all will be well. Come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Come to Jesus, and everything that you want will go your way. Really? When we come to Christ for something other than our need of desperate salvation, we have come to the wrong Christ. In fact, I will tell you, we have not come to Christ at all. Interesting enough, it continues on. And uh, we see in these next uh, couple of uh, verses, 15b and 16a, okay, I'm going to start off in 15. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. So I'm going to stop there. The next thing is this. When we fail to receive and cultivate God's grace, we risk cultivating bitterness and immorality. The bottom line is this. When we fail to talk to people about their desperate need for a Savior, when we fail to tell them that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and P.S., by the way, we include ourselves in that, what we do is we risk teaching them that Christ exists for some other purpose than to uh, grant them eternal salvation for their souls. And when that happens, individuals begin to get confused and think, well, I thought that God was going to do this for me, or I thought that God existed for me to give me X, Y, and Z. And if he does, praise God for it. But if he doesn't, what happens? Bitterness. Sometimes that is expressed in sexual immorality. Interestingly enough, we see this. 
the bitterness described by the author here, okay, it's not directed toward people or toward life, but it is directed toward Christ. Remember, the context of this word is based upon the foundation of all the previous writing of the book of Hebrews. Don't take it out of context. The bitterness is harvested when someone says, I've examined Christ, I want the blessing, but not the responsibility. I want the reward, but not the relationship. I want the riches, but I will not repent. And friends, what I'm going to tell you is this. I want my will to be done, not thy will to be done. Friends, when we say thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do we mean it? And loving what I'm going to tell you, if that's the will of God, if the will of God is to place your life to something similar to Job, will you still hail him as Lord? That's what's going on here. When we look at the followers of Jesus, when we look at those who had professed their faith in him, particularly Jesus' disciples, lovingly, I'm going to tell you this. They didn't retire in a large mansion with a huge 401k and ride off into the sunset. They were beaten. They were martyred. They were mocked. They were ruined. And yet they continued to follow Jesus Christ. And so lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is this. Are our hearts for Christ, come what may? And then the author continues on, and he gives this interesting example, okay? We read this, and it says, See to it that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance... And then afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could not bring about change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, interesting, you look at this and you think, well, God, you know, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, this individual is sitting there and he's saying, God, I'm sorry, I, I, I want the blessing. I, I, I want what you have. I'm, I'm, I'm crying. And in a moment, what we're going to learn as we kind of look into this is it's simply this. Esau's heart wants the blessing and the prosperity, but he does not want the responsibility of being the one who will be part of the coming of the Messiah. We're going to take a minute. And what I want to do is, is if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you, particularly later today, to go and take some time and study this. We're going to be looking, essentially, in kind of Genesis 25, but this story really kind of takes root in Genesis 27. And in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of summarize what's going on. We recognize that Rebecca is going to be with children. God says that there are going to essentially be children, and to come, what we realize is Esau comes first, and Jacob comes what? holding on to the heel of Esau. Now Esau, by birthright, is the one who is essentially the leader, the one who should have the birthright of the family. But what he does is he trades in his birthright, what? 
for just a morsel. And what we discover through this is that Esau's heart is not to follow God and what he has been given. He wants the blessing. He wants the land. He wants the good. But he's not willing to follow the will of God in order to obtain it. And so what I want to say to you is this. The story of Esau is found in Genesis 27 in which he was tricked out of the blessing of Isaac by Rebekah and Jacob. But what we discover from the story is that Esau wanted all of the material rights of the blessing. He wanted the reward and the riches of the material inheritance, but not the responsibility of it. Not the relationship from it, and not true repentance to obtain it. Esau wanted the benefits of the property and the material of the blessing, but nothing to do with the responsibility of it. He wanted nothing to do with being part of the promise of the Messiah. The writer continues on, and he says essentially this. He could not bring about a change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. What the author is doing is he's reminding the individuals. He's reminding them that part of following God, following Christ, is submitting yourself to his will and in his relationship. Friends, what I want to ask you is this. Have you made Christ your Lord? Have you repented of your sins? Do you desire that relationship with him? Because what the author is driving at is sure, we all would like the blessing, but if we're not willing to follow God, then we will not have the blessing of God. Let me put it another way. We see in the New Testament that what? Many people have cried out to Jesus, right? And what does Jesus say? Away from, from me for I never knew you. That's what's going on. In short, the story of Esau refers to someone who says, Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you to bless me. I want you to give me all that I think that I deserve. Sound familiar? but I don't want to submit myself to your will and to your ways. I want you to be my savior, but not my Lord. And so friends, this morning I ask you, where is your heart with Christ? Because we all want him to be our savior. But do we truly hail him as Lord? The writer continues on, and then he starts to transfer over to this idea of two separate entities to demonstrate once again the clarity of the blessing of the grace of God versus the law and the Old Testament system. We're going to read essentially about two mountains, Mount Sinai, where God appears to Moses and gives him the law, and Mount Zion of what we are due for and destined for when we are with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so the author transitions and he says this, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. The author is taking them back because anyone who was a, a, a Jew of the day, okay, would remember and recognize what God did with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to see in terms of this contrast. Notice the words of expression. Okay? Fire. Darkness. Gloom. Storm. A trumpet blast and a voice so loud that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Think through this for a minute. God is presenting himself to mankind through Moses. But those words there are to demonstrate his holiness and his absolute authority. What I want to read to you is this. Remember, this is what the author is saying. There was great fear when God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. And you can read about that in essentially Exodus 19 and 20. We see the author in Hebrews use the words fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest to remind the readers of God's inapproachable holiness, particularly when they are still guilty of their sin. That's what's going on. He's saying, may I remind you that back in the Old Testament, back in the law, God was so holy, God is so holy, that if you were to go anywhere near that mountain, you would die. And he accentuates it from the writing that is expressed that even if an animal, an innocent animal who was not cognizant of what was going on, went to that mountain, it would go and Essentially the idea is how much more you. Now the purpose behind that is to demonstrate truly how holy and amazing God is and our inability to approach him on our own because he's going to accentuate the grace of God and the love of God that we receive through Jesus Christ with the other mountain, Mount Zion. And the reason for that, brothers and sisters, is this. Too often do we think that we can just march right up to God and say, God, I got a beef with you. God, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. God, I'm going to tell you how you should be doing this. And what I'm going to tell you is this. If you ever march up to God and tell him what to do apart from Jesus Christ, it isn't going to go well. Because he's holy. Because he's Lord. Because he is the maker of heaven and earth. And we should revere him as Lord. But the contrast is this. When we approach God 
through the grace of Jesus Christ. Not on our own, not on our own fruition, not on our own ability. We are not set to the fire, to the fear, to the tempest, to the destruction, to the if we get too close to the mountain. We are received wholly as his. And that is the transition that the writer is speaking to. So the author is essentially saying this, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't go back to the law of God given to us through Moses at Mount Sinai. Because I'm reminding you that the God who presented himself there, as great as he is, is inapproachable because of the guilt of your sin. But what do we know? We know that Jesus has come and died, and when he dies, what? The veil is torn. And we can what? As the author has said earlier in the book of Hebrews, approach the throne of God with what? Confidence. Confidence in who? Ourselves? Absolutely not. Confidence in our Savior. Confidence in Jesus. And then he says, now let me show you the transition. What I'm going to tell you, friends, is rather we are to rest in the grace of God given to us through Christ and the promise of Mount Zion. Verse 22, but you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now before I go further, remember what's going on here. The Jews of the day, the people who are following Christ and those who are not, are looking over and they see a temple that is still functioning. Yes, it's been shaken. Yes, the veil is torn. But not a big change has occurred apart from Christ coming, demonstrating that he has risen over the uh, death and been resurrected from the grave. But they're looking around and they're saying, well, Jesus is now up somewhere in heaven, but there's no change. I don't see any difference. What the author is saying is, he's saying, this isn't your home. This isn't what you're destined for. You in Christ are destined for what? Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, okay, the mediator of a new covenant. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Christ, to Zion, to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Ah. We're not destined for the law, we're destined for the grace of Christ. Friends, rather, we're to rest in the grace of God given to us through Christ and the promise of Mount Zion. And there's so much more here that I'd love to go into. You could write an entire sermon just on these verses. I encourage you to study them deeply. But the point that I'd like to give is this. Remember, because of the grace given to us through Christ, the veil which was separ had separated us from him for centuries has been torn in two. 
we can now approach his holy, inapproachable, uh, this holy, inapproachable God with confidence. Why? Because through Christ, our sins have been forgiven and we have been declared righteous. That's what is being stated here. And the author is saying, why would you want to go back? Why would you not want to rest in the grace of God? But reminding the individuals that resting in the grace of God does not mean just living your life how you want to live it. It's living your life for our Lord, repenting of our sins, asking him forgiveness, allowing him to work in our hearts and our lives. And then interestingly enough, these last couple of uh, verses are going to be transitioning us into the speaking of the unshakable kingdom, which is coming. And so in verse 25, he says, See to it that none of you refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Notice that example. If we didn't escape him while he was on earth, how much less will he escape when he warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Interesting enough, essentially what's going on is, is the author is quoting from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6, referring to the prophecy that is about to take place. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And to us, we kind of say, oh, what's that all about? Think about this for a minute. Most likely, the book of Hebrews was written in 62 to 65 AD. People are looking around. They see the temple still functioning. They're saying, what is going on? We're under persecution. I don't see God working. I'm thinking about going back to what was. But seven, five to seven years later, okay, think through this for us. That is an election cycle, okay? Four years, maybe eight. What occurs? In 70 AD, as we know in history, the temple of what they're seeing is destroyed. That's what's being spoken about with the reverberation to the second coming of Christ. And so one of the things that we need to remember and be encouraged about in verses 25 through 27 is this. The author essentially is saying, therefore, hold on to Christ because God is about to shake things up back then and in our future. What do we mean by that? These individuals see the temple still in its existence, probably five to seven years after this book is written, the temple is destroyed. We today, friends, are living our lives and we're wondering when Christ is going to come again. How long, oh God, when will you come? When will you be here? When will you make things new? And what I'm going to tell you is this, I don't know, no one knows. But interestingly enough, I find it so parallel to what's going on that these individuals hear and read the promise written out of the book of Hebrews, and in five to seven years that temple is shaken. Could it be, could it be 
that there are five or seven or eight or ten more years, or maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand. But what we know is this, that just as it was promised that the temple would be destroyed, just as it promised that Christ will come again. And so lovingly, I ask you this, where is your heart with God? Is he Lord of your life? We've asked this question, can I have the blessing of God without responsibility? The reward of heaven without the relationship with Christ? The riches of the kingdom without genuine repentance? And the final thing that I want to leave you with is this. Friends, we receive the blessing, reward, and riches of the kingdom of God through grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Yet, we demonstrate that we have received this blessing through responsibility, relationship, and repentance. Are we following Jesus? Are we being responsible with what he has given us? Are we in relationship with him and have we truly repented of our sins? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for this writing from the author in the book of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for the challenge that it gives us Lord, I pray that we would examine our hearts and our lives and that we would truly come before you and say, Lord, do we just want the blessing? Do we just want to be saved? Do we just want to get to heaven? But we're not willing to truly follow you and say truthfully, thy will be done. Father, uh, are we not in relationship with you? Have we not given our heart to you? Have we not repented of our sins? Father, all of those things or an indicator that truly you are Lord of our life. Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've given. We thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to buy it. But Father, the genuine mark of someone who's a follower of Jesus is not someone who has proclaimed them and then wants nothing to do with them. Father, the mark of someone who is truly saved by Christ is someone who recognizes their sin and need for a Savior. And because of that salvation, their hearts are changed, transformed. Their trajectory is different. And so in that, Lord, may we be salt and light for you. May we go out to this world, share the gospel with people. But Father, may we do so hailing you as Lord. And in that, Lord, we ask that people would want to know you more. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.